0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the 1760s, a surgeon decided to do an experiment on himself. It started out with a bread and water diet, and then one by one, he introduced more foods olive oil, milk, beef. He was trying to figure out how to cure a particular illness, but he wasn't working quickly enough. Several weeks after the experiment started, he got the illness that he'd been trying to prevent scurvy. But even though he was sick, He kept working, and he did have time to turn things around. One by one, he added in more foods—figs, bacon, cheese, butter—to see if one of them would cure the scurvy. The surgeon died at age 29 after seven months of this experiment. He had not yet introduced the foods that would have saved him—citrus fruits. Unfortunately for the surgeon, a paper had actually been published a few years before arguing that citrus— could cure scurvy. The man who had come up with that idea was also a surgeon, and he had used a technique that was not properly appreciated at the time randomized trials, which would turn out to change the world. The surgeon who had uncovered the cure for scurvy had tested potential remedies on sailors, and citrus was like a miracle. Randomized trials, of course, have grown in importance, uncovering hidden facts in everything from medicine to politics. These facts are often not well understood, but they've got a lot to teach us about how we can do things better. Andrew Lee is the author of the new book, Randomistas. He's also a member of the Australian Parliament. Andrew, welcome.
1: Hi, Kara. Great to be with you.
0: So let's just talk... Uh, for a second here, since I started talking about it, about scurvy. I did not realize how incredibly deadly scurvy was. Um, You wrote that if you were a British sailor in the Seven Years' War, which is in the middle of the 1700s, you had about a 1% chance of dying in combat and a more than 70% chance of dying from scurvy. That is incredible.
1: It's extraordinary, isn't it? So you've got this figure that about two million sailors died from scurvy. Wow. uh, More than from skirmishes, storms and shipwrecks combined. Hmm. And one of the reasons that they used to press gang uh, unwilling uh, sailors on ships was because they knew at the start of the voyage that not everyone was going to come home, right. that they would need to be overmanned at the start of the journey uh, because of the ravages that Scurvy would exact on the crew. Uh, it's such a brutal disease. And and the way in which it, it inflicted its harm upon those who contracted it, uh, this tale that uh, one of those uh, the uh, sailors had about how his old battle wounds, which had healed decades earlier, began to open up as, as right. Scurvy. Scurvy ate away at the connective tissue. Mm.
0: And so talk about this surgeon who, in fact, the one who originally wrote this paper saying, um, I've done some studies here and I'm pretty sure it's citrus, it's lemons, it's limes that helps people either not get scurvy or recover from scurvy. Talk about how we figured that out and why for a long time people like did not listen to this guy.
1: So James Lynn's a remarkable guy. Uh, He's a a 31-year-old ship surgeon on uh, HMS Salisbury and he just tries a simple experiment. He takes 12 sailors afflicted by scurvy uh, and uh, splits them into... Uh, six groups of pairs, uh, and then tries different treatments on each pair. Uh, So one group gets cider, one group gets vinegar, one group gets sulfuric acid, one group gets seawater. These are all theories that had been proposed to tackle scurvy. Uh, And one group get oranges and lemons. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not surprisingly, the uh, the pair that got oranges and lemons are back on duty within a week. Uh, The uh, folks who got uh, sulfuric acid and seawater are uh, languishing just as badly uh, a week later.
0: And I should say, sulfuric acid was the Preferred treatment that the British Navy gave people, (laughs) right? For scurvy. Exactly. So, you know, these things sound crazy,
1: but uh, they really had no idea how to deal with this atrocious disease. Uh, he takes uh, six years to write it up. It's 456 pages. And the problem with what Lynn does, Kara, is that he has this beautifully constructed randomised trial for working out exactly which treatments work. Uh, but then he really doesn't have any idea as to why oranges and lemons work, so he makes up hocus-pocus around it. Hmm. Uh, and respectable scientists can tell that his... Uh, uh, description of why and lemons work uh, is essentially garbage. And so they discard his uh, beautiful randomized trial.
0: Mm-hmm. How would you define a randomized trial? What is it? What do you need to sort of put one together if you were going to do it? What are the essential ingredients?
1: So essentially, you just need to assign the treatment based on luck. Uh, It could be the toss of a coin, could be randomised numbers and an Excel generator, could be drawing uh, numbers out of a hat. Uh, But the key is that you want to know what the world would look like uh, if you didn't put in place that intervention. So suppose we want to know whether or not uh, uh, getting an extra hour's sleep makes you happier. Uh, We might uh, ask 100 of your listeners to toss a coin. Heads, we ask you to sleep for an extra hour tonight. Uh, Tails, you just get your regular night's sleep and then we survey everyone about their happiness. Mm -hmm. And if we found that people for whom the coin came up heads were happier tomorrow, we might conclude that sleep uh, has a positive effect on happiness. And what's clever about that is it gets around the possibility of reverse causation, Uh, that maybe if we just looked at the simple correlation between sleep and happiness, uh, it might be that happier people were going to bed earlier. The randomised trial lets us get a true causal effect.
0: Yeah. And you talk about this in terms of like there's this classic example of that um, there's more uh, shark attacks when uh, people eat more ice cream. Uh, Precisely. But in fact, there's no relationship between those two things. It's just that they both happen during the summertime. But you could wrongly infer that, like, you know, if you eat dairy, sharks will attack you.
1: Exactly. Or you might conclude that if you eat lots and lots of chocolate, then you're more likely to win a Nobel Prize, given that countries with high chocolate consumption also have higher numbers of Nobel Prizes. Uh, Entirely spurious correlation, uh, and one where you need uh, good evidence of the causal chain. And this explains why if you want to get a a drug uh, through uh, pharmaceutical approvals in an advanced country, you basically have to show evidence from a randomised trial. Uh, But they're much rarer in areas such as education policy, social policy, uh, crime policy, or indeed uh, rarer in business.
0: Hmm. Well, so you're a politician, uh, part of the Australian government. Do you feel like when you look around at your colleagues or even sort of politicians across the world – Do you feel like uh, politicians are open to the kind of evidence uh, that might result from randomized trials Um, or do you feel like most people start with a a dogma, you know, this is what I believe and I don't really care what the evidence tells me, this is what I believe? We've all got our presuppositions, right. but
1: I think in the area of medicine, uh, there's a strong support for uh, for randomised trials. You know, most of us would not want to put our grandmother uh, onto a cancer treatment which had shown to fail a randomised trial. Uh, and in other areas i think uh, high quality evidence from randomized trials also has the advantage of uh, simplicity uh, i can explain a randomized trial to my uncle in a way i can't explain some of the other econometric techniques that i might have employed in my uh, my former profession of uh, mm-hmm. being an economics professor mm-hmm. uh, they have a sort of simplicity a cleanliness a kind of uh, you, you can you can see my hands kind of uh, kind of mm-hmm. aspect to them which uh, which i think is quite compelling if you're in a political discourse mm.
0: okay so- So let's talk about a couple of trials that you write about that I think are interesting in terms of their implications, in terms of politics and public policy. And one uh, takes place in the 90s um, in Los Angeles. And there's this question about does simply changing your zip code, basically, if you live in a poor neighborhood or a rich neighborhood, does that change your outcome and life? And so some poor families are Taken and put in these richer zip codes, and then they're followed. Like, what happens to them? What happens to their kids? Does it change anything?
1: So this is the Moving to Opportunity study. Uh, five cities, including Los Angeles. The study is looking at uh, what happens if uh, families are given a housing voucher that allows them to move to a low-poverty neighborhood. Right. Uh, and what's striking about it, Car is that early on, most of the research uh, seems to suggest fairly disappointing effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, not big impacts on uh, on employment. Not big impacts on children children's outcomes or risky behaviours. A little bit on mental health, largely because people are moving to low. Or crime neighborhoods uh, but it didn't look like there was a massive payoff
0: and let me just insert what I remember is that for girls like if you had a, a you know children that were girls girls tended to be slightly helped like early on mm, and boys mm. engaged in more risky behavior if they moved to richer areas which is like not what you'd think but early on that's what was happening.
1: Exactly. And part of the problem seemed to be that the researchers were inadvertently combining the outcomes for all of the children. Uh, and it wasn't until a, a group of researchers in 2015 did two things. First of all, they matched up the outcomes for the, the children who families had moved to taxation data, and so they were able to get very precise outcome measures over a long period. Uh, and secondly, they looked at the age at which the children moved. Uh, and they found that uh, if you're an under 13 who moved to a low poverty na- neighbourhood, uh, then you're lifetime earnings seem to be about a third higher so yeah. it looks like there's a there's an earnings boost something in the order of around three hundred thousand dollars for each of these preteen children that moves from a high poverty to a low poverty neighborhood that's a massive impact a life-changing impact uh, indeed it's such a big effect that you don't even need to place any uh, social weight on the outcomes of the children themselves uh, just you know, the government gets a good deal in terms of paying for housing vouchers and getting more money Money back through taxation to say nothing of the uh, the terrific outcomes for mm. the kids. So it seems like moving uh, moving families low-poverty neighborhoods when their children are young really does have a significant effect. Uh, and this is one of those fascinating moments of big data meets uh, randomized trials uh, and we learn a whole lot more about the world.
0: And so you're saying these kids go on to make so much more money by being put in a this sort of more high-income neighborhood that what the government makes back in taxes, just by taxing that extra income, more than pays for the housing voucher that they had spent to get them to the high-income neighborhood. Precisely. Okay. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Andrew Lee, a member of Australia's Parliament. He's also the author of the new book, Randomistas. So let's talk a little bit about how randomized trials affect our everyday life. Uh, Just give me a sense of the way in which, you know, as I go through life, what things that I touch, do in a normal day have been affected by randomized trials.
1: Well, if you uh, use the internet today, you've probably been part of a randomised trial. Okay. Google is, uh, is con- constantly conducting randomised trials, and indeed the number of search results that turn up, the colour of the Google search bar all optimised through randomised trials, which Google expects to anticipates have added uh, millions of dollars to their bottom line. Hmm. Uh, If you uh, go into uh, a supermarket, then uh, you're probably uh, part of randomised trials, uh, both in terms of shelf placement and also in terms of uh, pricing. Uh, If you're wondering why about uh, half of all published prices end with the number nine, uh, you can (laughs) thank Marketing Randomised Trials for that. Uh, CVS did this uh, fascinating study a, a couple of years. Back in which it uh, randomly ended promotions in half of its stores to see whether promotions were uh, were paying off. Uh, there's uh, were they? there's been other, uh, no, there weren't. So okay. uh, yeah, they can they can they, they cancelled the promotions. So okay. uh, uh, you'll have to blame the randomesters if you liked okay. your uh, your CVS promotions at the time. Uh, Humana, Chrysler, United Airlines, uh, a whole lot of firms are uh, are constantly tweaking and experimenting. One expert says that every pixel on the Amazon homepage has had to justify its existence through (laughs) a randomized trial.
0: Um, You have actually written about how this idea of randomized trials, we started talking about scurvy, really comes out of trying to figure out what is good for your health, what isn't, what remedies work, what don't. But in what ways... Have you changed your sort of daily life and like your approach to health through the results of randomized trials that you've seen?
1: Yeah, I used to take a daily multivitamin tablet uh, and then I read a uh, review of uh, the studies on on multivitamins suggesting that uh, supplements of vitamins A, C and E didn't do anything for healthy people. So I've stopped taking my daily multivitamin tablets. Um, Similarly, for my daily fish oil tablet, uh, I think fish is good for you. I'm less persuaded that uh, fish oil tablets are good based on the randomized trials. So I've dropped that as well. Uh, I'm a marathon runner, and so uh, I, uh, I follow the results of a randomized trial which showed that uh, compression socks aid recovery. so uh, uh, after completing a, a big marathon, I'll wear compression socks for a couple of weeks afterwards. Uh, mm. and uh, you know you just keep on uh, look at, looking looking at, uh, at opportunities as to where you can t- hone your own your, your, what, you're, what you're doing in your own life. Uh, the subtitle of my book was chosen based on a randomized trial we did on Google. <laughs> that, uh, uh took an hour and cost about $50 and uh, really? produ- uh, allowed us to test
0: the various titles uh, that, uh, that my editors and I had thought might work. Oh, so I should say the subtitle is How Radical Researchers Are Changing Our World. And by the way, can you just set up a randomized trial on Google for, what did you say, $50 to figure out your subtitle, your book subtitle?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Really? So we had a, a an ad running. Uh the uh, the ad had the various titles of of books that we thought. Um the the worst performing title, I have to say, Random How a Powerful Tool Changed Our World. Uh, not a single person clicked on that title. Really? Uh, and uh, the highest click through was uh, was the one that Yale University Press's gone with, uh, How Radical Researchers Are Changing Our World.
0: Are there um Randomized trials, you know, you you talked about vitamins and fish oil. Are there results of randomized trials that you think are not well known in the public? But are there a couple things you'd like to tell people about that, like, we should pay more attention to um, in the world today?
1: Yeah, so surgery is one of the things that uh, that I was comp- had my eyes completely opened on on uh, writing this book. Uh, the surgery traditionally has been uh, a craft which has been averse to the sort of rigorous testing of interventions that medicine has put drugs to. Uh, But recently, uh, uh, surgeons have been much more open to doing what's called sham surgery, Mm -hmm. uh, in which patients consent to either having the regular operation done on them or else to being sliced open uh, and sewn back up again without the operation being performed.
0: It's hard to imagine signing up for that. Just open me up. Don't do any. I guess you don't know. You don't know whether you had the surgery or not.
1: Exactly. You don't know. And the surgeon doesn't even know until the moment they walk into the operating theater. So they can't treat you differently in the prep phase.
0: Okay, But
1: uh, the consent is rigorous. There's ethical evaluations. Uh, But the results have been striking. Uh, One study of uh, 50 sham surgery trials uh, found that in about half the cases, uh, the real surgery did not outperform the sham surgery. (laughs) And we're talking about operations that are performed millions of times a year uh, around the world uh, knee surgery shoulder surgery uh, meniscectomies uh, you know this is big and important stuff given how we how much we spend on healthcare we really need to know whether these surgeries work And then how how best to make them work. So there's randomized trials of robotic surgery. There's randomized trials that would look, for example, with a hip replacement. Is it better to make the incision coming in from the front or the side or the back? Is it better to use one kind of uh, uh, surgical technique than another? All these things are being rigorously tested, and uh, patients are the better for it. Hmm.
0: Give me a sense of some of – I mean, we have talked about a lot of things that um, randomized trials can tell you. What are some of the downsides, if you see any, to doing these kinds of trials?
1: You need to be absolutely solid on the ethical uh, dimension. So, for example, Facebook did an emotional manipulation experiment some years back in which they randomly changed the emotional content of users' feeds in order to uh, answer the uh, fascinating and important psychological question uh, as to whether seeing more positive information in your friends' feeds made you more positive and more negative. Uh, And it turned out you followed the emotions of your friends. Uh, So interesting results psychologically, uh, but they hadn't warned users of it and they hadn't uh, compensated them in any way. Uh, I'm all for uh, Facebook setting up a uh, a panel of its users who've agreed to to be part of interesting psychological studies, Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think they should have done this experiment on users without their consent. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also need to make sure that the there is rigorous oversight and that the experiment is uh, stopped if it looks as though it's doing harm. Uh, or indeed, sometimes uh, experiments are stopped in the medical literature because the established procedure it turns out to be much worse than the, uh, the than the control group.
0: I wonder if, like, in the case of some of those surgeries where people were just getting cut open and sewed back up, um, but they are actually weren't getting the surgery, they were kind of the control group. Mm. I wonder if going into that, medical researchers thought, these people are really getting a raw deal. Like some people are getting knee replacements and other people are getting nothing. They're getting an incision in their knee and nothing else. I just wonder if, you know, there's ever times when people have these kind of qualms about, gee, we're giving these people so much of a better deal than these people.
1: Yeah, well, but you only have to uh, look at, uh, for example, the uh, the drug thalidomide, which was uh, mm-hmm. was given out to pregnant women in order to deal with dealing with morning sickness, and turned out to be doing terrible damage right. to uh, to babies
0: in the nineteen fifties. Right? It was one... exactly, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, And there, you would very much have wanted to be part of the control group, not the tra- mm-hmm. treatment group. Right. Uh, we've got social uh, social policy interventions such as scared straight, in which youths uh, are put in jail for a day in order to uh, reduce the chance they'll offend. Uh, scared straight turned out to increase offending rates. And again, there, you'd want to be in the control group rather right. than the treatment group. Right. Right. The very fact we're doing the randomized trial is because we don't know whether it's better to be in the treatment or the control group. And and there are
0: countless moments where it's actually better not to get the treatment. Mm-hmm. Andrew Lee is the author of the new book, Randomistas. He's also a member of the Australian Parliament. Andrew, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you, Kara. Great to be with you. We'll have an article about the Moving to Opportunity Study, where the government moved low-income families into higher-income areas. You'll find it on our website, innovationhub.org.